journey. Help us welcome Ryan to the stage today. For those of you brand new to our church, welcome. I'm Christian. I'm one of the pastors. Ryan, we are so grateful to have you here today. Would you feel more comfortable talking to me if I had a baseball? Like I, like, <laughs> yeah. like I, could, I could hold a baseball. And bouncing off the walls. Yeah. and Yeah. Would that make this easier? Yeah. No, I just did a game with HUD two days ago, so this will be a nice change today. My hope is <laughs> that if this goes really well, you'll invite me to do a game at Kaufman. <laughs> so stay tuned. You'll know. You'll know how well this day went. I let Ryan do church. He lets me do a baseball game. Sure. Like that, that's yeah. hopefully the trade. Hey, before we dig into your story a little bit, yep. thank God there is going to be a baseball season. Mm-hmm. You've been with the guys down in spring training. How's the, uh, how's the club look from your bird's eye view? Well, I just, uh, I just flew in last night with the family and got hit with some spring allergies when we landed. It was nice to see the green grass, but my body wasn't ready for it yet. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited. I haven't been exci- as excited for a season for a long time just because we have a lot of young players who are just kind of coming into their own. Um, this Bobby Wood Jr. kid is really good, and so I'm hoping he makes the team out of spring training. And, um, but I'll be going back on the road again. I was home the last two years doing games remotely, so it's, it's bittersweet. I'm happy to be doing my job again, um, but I have to say goodbye to my family every now and then to go on the road. So when, when you get on, a, are you getting on a plane today or to, Tuesday? Right? Tuesday, yep. So when you get on a plane Tuesday to go do baseball, that'll be the first time since 2020 you've left your, ki- your wife and kids yeah. to go do baseball because you've been able to sleep at home every night, It's right? been great. And I'm in the minority. I mean, a lot of my colleagues have been just griping the last two years. Oh, how are we supposed to do our jobs off the TV screens? And, you know, we should be there. And um, I have four young children, as you know. So I liked going home every night. And so it's a lot better for me when something goes wrong. And for people who travel, everything goes wrong when we're on the road. It's never when we're home. But for two years, I got to tell Sarah if something went wrong, I'll be home in four hours instead of I'll be home in four days. So, um, so we're back to that again. But we'll see. So the purpose today is to share your story mm-hmm. um, a little bit. And your story from the outside is you, I mean, you, you were living the dream that honestly... A lot of the parents in this room um, are chasing with their kids. There's some people watching online this morning who are probably waiting for the baseball game or the softball game or the soccer game to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, raised by a dad who played in the big leagues, managed in the big leagues, um, played baseball at the University of Minnesota, three-time All-Big Ten, drafted by the Cleveland Indians, and then you end up working in Major League Baseball, you have one of 30 jobs in the world as a broadcaster for a Major League Baseball team, um, calling these great moments that we're watching behind us on the screen. And on the inside, your life um, is slowly crumbling. I mean, to, to read your story in the dark places you walk through after they shut off the stadium lights and um, you went off the air, um, share a little bit of what it was like for the world to see one thing, and, and you to feel probably so alone um, yeah. in your struggles. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and my parents separated when I was 18 months old. I was an only child till I was 13. So I struggled to find my identity. My culture was an identity of high profile and glitz and glamour. My father was a not only a a major league baseball player, but a major league baseball player for the Dodgers. And he was from Los Angeles. So my father was uh, um, a big name and it's a unique name too. So, you know, my last name is not Smith or Anderson. So, I mean, when I would say my name's Ryan Lefevre, oh, are you related to Jim? Um, My mom was beautiful, successful. And so immediately my self-worth and my image was tied to What can I do and what can I get to be successful? Didn't think about being happy. I just figured that that would come with being successful. And so um, I was a good athlete, and I earned a college scholarship to the University of Minnesota. But it was all about becoming a professional baseball player because that would mean fame and success and happiness. And then I, I, I quit playing shortly after my minor league career began. I, I, it was the beginning of some healing in that I realized my, my, my self-worth could not come from, from what my father did for a living. I had, to, I had to carve my own path. But, of course, I got into a very high-profile 
profession, and that was not an accident because it was still about what can I do for attention, um, what can I do for um, fame, uh, wealth. I mean, that's just that's that's who I was. We moved a lot when I was young. When I was done with second grade, I'd been to six different schools. If you start with with preschool, so. So my dad's name, baseball image, was really all that I had. That's how I would fit in. And when I finally did fit in, in high school and in college, I wasn't able to let go of, I need to be somebody for me to be happy. And as I say in the video, and by the way, Gabe Crumpley did a great job with the video. I'm, I watched that video, and I'm like, I'm not that cool. I'm really not. <laughs> I'm just, just like... <laughs> um, but... Um, as, and this is so counterintuitive, it's so countercultural, but as good things continued to happen to me as I began to cross things off the list, the more unhappy I began. There, I became more empty, and I didn't understand. So there was this almost this acceleration of doing more and getting more until I remember the first house that I bought here in Kansas City. I bought a five-bedroom house on Lake Winnebago when I was 29 years old. I had two nice cars in the garage. I had a boat and a jet ski in my dock, and I lived in that house alone. And I used to sit in that house and just look out over the lake and think, this is not what I thought this was going to be. I had never felt so alone and empty in my life. And so I had to figure out, you know, what exactly I missed along the road there. And um, it, it took a lot of work. I had to go back to the beginning. So we are calling this day at our church Mental Health Compassion Day. Um, Mental Health Awareness Month is in May, but obviously we knew you would be traveling on the road. It would be impossible for you to do a a complete Sunday morning with us during the baseball season. Um, And Ryan, as I have watched as a pastor the last two years, the mental health crisis in our country escalate. I read an article two weeks ago that said um, the stress level of Americans is at an all-time high. Nearly 8 in 10 Americans, 80%, say they are living with what they believe is an abnormal level of stress, which that means means that's almost everyone you know um, is living with an abnormal level of stress. The levels have never been that high, not even in World War II, Mm. um, where that level are this level of Americans living with stress and anxiety and depression, the last few years of education, um, the last few years of caring for aging parents that you can't even go and see in the nursing homes, um, has just begun to cripple the soul of America. And for those of you who um, are not a part of our church, we started a, a Bible teaching series last week about Jesus called Revealed for Rest. If you brought your Bibles today, I want to read just three verses. You can turn to them. If you have a smartphone, you can dial them up on your smartphone. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible or or don't have the Bible app on your phone, no big deal. We plan for you to be here so the verses will be on the screen so that you can follow along. But Jesus makes us a promise that if we come to him when we're tired and burned out and stressed, that he can help us. Um, And I want to do two things. I want to look at the scripture that Jesus gave us. And then, Ryan, several years ago... Um, watching the Royals games, I saw you talking about a book that you and Jeff Flanagan, who was a Royals beat writer forever, had written called The Shame of Me, Your Journey um, to Depression and Back. We are not selling these today at our church, but if you are struggling with anxiety and depression, if you have a family member struggling with anxiety and depression and you're a baseball fan, um, this would be an enjoyable and I think comforting read for you. You can pick up this book, The Shame of Me by Ryan Lefevre. And Ryan, reading your story and reading Jesus' plan for rest, I thought these over these overlap. Um, you probably did some things that you didn't know Jesus was telling you to do. And in the midst of that, you found Jesus at a whole nother level that has brought you to where you are today. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30 Just very simply say this. Here's Jesus' promise for those of you, perhaps 80% in the room, who are a little stressed out today. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Ryan, as we talked last week, we said that Jesus was going to show us three things. He was going to show us how to find rest. He was going to show us how to find freedom. And he was going to show us how running towards him surrounded us with spiritual family, spiritual community. Um, we find all three of those things in your book, which is why I wanted you to come and share your story today. Because I believe Ryan's story has the opportunity to deeply impact three groups of people in the room. Um, first group of people, those of you who may be all by yourself, nobody else knows that you're struggling with depression, anxiety, stress, loneliness. You got the big house, you got the nice cars. You are the only one who knows you're sitting inside more lonely and empty than anyone could have ever imagined. If that's you, I think this Sunday in Ryan's story can offer you hope. Secondly, people who are masking that loneliness with some type of substance or addiction, drugs or alcohol or prescription drugs, um, instead of feeling the emptiness, you're trying to numb the emptiness. I think today might have some impact for you. And those of us who have sons and daughters and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors and colleagues who were watching Journey Through Anxiety and Depression. I think Ryan can tell us a little bit about what the people in his life did to come around him that might give us some hope today. As you hear me say you might have answers for those things. I know you're thinking, man, I don't have answers, but you do have your story. How does it make you feel knowing that your story has impact in those areas? Well, like everyone in this room, I was impacted by the Barrick family when they were here. And there were a couple of things that they said that really connected with me. Number one, they talked a lot about how they're just a normal family that had an extraordinary circumstance. That's how I see myself. My story is not a remarkable story. I've always said that. And there are people in this room who are dealing with or have dealt with a lot more severe situations than I have. Um, but it is a story that I'm sharing. And I probably got more healing. I had a counselor. I had a life coach. I went to seminars. I read. Um, but what impacted me the most is when people would share their story with me. And I could look at them, and, and they looked healed. They looked like they had gotten through it. And I, ha I, I drew a lot of hope from that. Now, I don't get that the opportunity to write that book without my job. And I'm not up here with you on Royals Day talking about mental health without my job. And so I realized that I have a unique platform and I just wanted, I wanna use it the best I can. I've always believed that, <clears throat> excuse me, I am not God's gift to broadcasting, but broadcasting has been God's gift to me. And so that is just me saying, this is what has happened to me. I hope you can use this. My depression was an answer to a prayer. I had heard somebody speak, and they talked about purification in a biblical, stand, biblical sense. Purification, refinement. And it was talked about how when, when um, a silversmith or a goldsmith in biblical times would, would find the raw metal in order to purify it, the silversmith would grab a piece of the raw metal and take a, a, some sort of flame underneath and would burn the impurities to the surface. And the silversmith, as the impurities are coming to the surface, is wiping them away until he sees his own reflection in the raw metal. And then he realizes the process is over and he takes the flame away or he can take it too far and actually burn and damage the metal. And the, and the comparison was when we have difficult things in our life, if we give them to Jesus, if we give them to God, <clears throat> he will wipe them away until he sees his reflection in us. And then he pulls the flame away. So I went home that night and I prayed for purification, which I needed in my life. <clears throat> I, um, I went to church. I donated money. I tried to um, limit cursing. I had, uh, I had quit drinking, <clears throat> but what I was really doing is I was trying to manipulate God and say, okay, I'm doing all of these things right, but I'm doing all of these things wrong, but I want you to bless these things that I'm doing wrong because of the things I'm doing right. I mean, I think that's a, a lot of what's going on in our culture today. I want God to work on my terms. What I didn't realize about that prayer <clears throat> is that there was a flame that comes with purification, and it hurt. 
it hurt a lot. But there were a lot of impurities that I needed to deal with, that I needed to ask for forgiveness for, I needed to forgive myself for. And I had to realize that, that God was the silversmith and that he was going to hold that flame there for as long as it took to get those impurities to the surface. So my depression was, was the answer to a prayer. Um, it didn't happen the way I wanted to. Um, as the worship team was up here and we're looking at the, at the lyrics on the screen, all your promises are yes and amen. And I, 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 I know now that it doesn't mean all of my prayers to you are yes and amen. All of your promises are yes and amen. So it didn't happen the way that I wished it had happened. I wanted to go to bed and wake up the next day purified and shout to the world, you know, look at me now. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm the purified Ryan Lefevre. But it, was, it, was a, it, was, it took years for me to go through that. But the, what was probably most important for me to realize that I was depressed and not feeling depressed. So you wonder, what's the difference? I mean, we do feel depressed at times. My counselor, Dale Williamson, said something to me one of the first days I sat with her. She said, is your life circumstance congruent with the way you feel? Because um, people have experienced a loss of a job or a loved one, um, whatever, disappointment in life. And we feel depressed because our life circumstance is aligned with how we feel. If how we feel is not aligned with our life circumstance, that would tell you that there's something wrong. Clinical depression, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you watched that video, and I told you some of the things that I set out to accomplish. And by the way, I wanted to accomplish all those things before I turned 30. But I didn't feel better. I felt worse. So there was a problem. First of all, I, I put all my hope in things um, rather than in people and in my faith. But that the incongruency in my life um, made me realize, as I said in the video, that there was no accomplishment and there was no relationship that was going to fix me. And I had to humble myself and realize that I had a problem and go to somebody who was trained to help me with my problem, help me realize where that problem began. And for me, it was being... Um, having a, a, an emotional detachment from my parents at a very young age and be a kid that just did not have an identity and looked at the wrong places for an identity. I had a life coach, uh, which is more mainstream now. It wasn't back then. But basically what a life coach is is someone who says, okay, now you've learned these things about yourself and what caused you to feel the way you feel. Now what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to be held accountable for moving forward? I was on medication for three and a half years. I was on Lexapro for three and a half years. And that worked to get me through the hard times and helped me to hear and really feel what I was learning about myself. Because before I went on medication, I'd meet with my counselor. I'd feel great until I got in my car and halfway home, I was feeling terrible again. So the medication just kind of helped me calm down so that I could absorb the knowledge that I was getting about myself. And then I had to make changes in my life. I mean, real changes. There were people in my life that didn't have a place in my life anymore. Um, there were places that I just couldn't go to anymore. There was music that I couldn't listen to anymore because it would remind me of something that was destructive in my past. And so I really had to redesign my life. So part of that redesign, which I found fascinating, uh, was how you found rest. Mm -hmm. So we talked last week, Jesus invites us to him for rest, but part of that rest is resting. Um, he pulled out the Sabbath concept to say, this is the space God gave you to rest so you could find healing. One of the fascinating things about your book is the monastery in northwest Missouri, a Conception Abbey that you spent a lot of time at resting and journaling and writing. Tell us how that, how that connection happened. This monastery founded in the, the late 1800s um, by some Irish monks um, coming over. Just talk about that experience of choosing to rest. Because I know you work in an industry that doesn't, it doesn't stop. So you had to choose to rest. What, what was it like and what would your challenge be for people, maybe not to go spend a day at a monastery, but to get alone and turn off the noise so that you can begin to find peace? 
Well, I couldn't find rest at home because everything that I had in my house was just a reminder of all these goals that I set out that were supposed to make me happy. You know, going to the ballpark every day brought me a lot of joy, but it also reminded me of um, how ashamed I was of my depression because I knew that I had a life that just about every male would love to have outside of actually playing the game. And so uh, I grew up Catholic. I'm one of the few Catholics that comes to a church like this that doesn't say, I grew up Catholic, but I grew up Catholic and, because I had a very good experience and priests who taught me about Jesus. And so I'd read a book years ago called Father Joe, and it was about an an English comedian who had um, a monk that he would visit in a monastery in Britain. And I loved it. And so I'd always wanted to go to a monastery. So finally I went up to Conception Abbey, and there they were. They were monks with their black habits on, and some of them had the hoods on. And I thought, oh, my gosh, like these places really do exist, you know. And I'd go in this beautiful basilica, and they'd be chanting the psalms, which is just like, um, I mean, will just shake you to your bones when you hear them just chanting the psalms to each other. But what I realized was that for me to find rest, I had to go find God. Um, and because I knew my high school principal, who's a retired Catholic bishop now, told me that God is constantly trying to communicate with us. It never ends. And he is putting people in our lives or conversations or life circumstances just to explain to us his love for us and his plan for us. But life is just so busy and it's so noisy that we don't take the time. Maybe at night we pray for a minute or two or we come to church on Sundays But I needed to go where I felt like I was going to visit God. And not that he was coming to visit me, but, you know, he was on the outside all the time, you know, knocking on the window saying, can I come inside? And I wouldn't even notice that he was knocking on the window. So going to Conception Abbey, and monks, by the way, are wonderful people to talk with. Because they spend so much time in rest and silence And contemplation that I went there. They weren't selling me anything. They weren't trying to get me to join the church or join the monastery. And they just listened. And and everything was backed up by scripture. And so and it also helped me then learn. This is another part of what you what you brought up at the beginning of our conversation. It also helped me take what was happening in my experience and be able to help others and walk alongside them to just sit and listen and just be present and not feel like I have to say something or I have to say, you need to read this book or, hey, or what I got all the time. Oh, you've got so much going for in your life. You should feel better. And if you're like me, that doesn't work. You should feel better only makes us feel worse because we know we should feel better, but we don't. And why don't I feel better? And why does this seem to be getting worse? My, 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 my journey through depression and anxiety is really, in the bigger picture, a story about grace and answered prayers. And I can tell you one of the worst nights, one of the worst nights that I had, and, and, and most of this book talks about the summer of 2005. And there's, there's two prayers and two stories of prayers that I want to I share with you if you are wondering about how prayer works and does prayer work. Number one, I was lying in bed in Toronto at the end of the 2005 season. And by the way, we lost 106 games that year. So my life was depressing and the team was depressing. <laughs> I mean, there, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, going to the ballpark did not bright. You heard all that stuff. Those of you who have lived in Kansas City for a long time, that only comes so often. Um, and I'm glad that I was there. But everyone told me that once I started the medication that it would take about a month for it to kick in. I was lying in bed in Toronto, getting ready for the last game of the season. And I wasn't getting any better. If anything, I was getting worse. And I started to think, the medication's not working. And if the medication's not working, how is this ever going to get any better? And now now the season is about to end, and I was single, and I'm about to go home, and I'm going to be alone in this house. What's going to happen to me? I had a high school teammate who took his life in college. His name is Sean Fitzpatrick. And when he died, he left a letter, 
and his family read it, and I don't know all the details of the letter, but in the letter, he said he, he just wanted to go be with God. He, just, he, he, he was not healing here on earth, and with his faith, he, that's where he wanted to go. And I was lying in bed, and my prayer and my conversation with God was, because I, there was prayer all along this, all along this time. <clears throat> I wasn't doing a lot of listening. I was doing a lot of talking. I always pictured my prayer time in the worst of my depression that I'd be praying and God would be going. (laughs) But I would never stop talking. We all have a friend like that. And that and that was me. And I, you know, I don't I never I've seen a thousand paintings of, of Jesus. I've never seen one looking at his watch, but I could imagine that there were times where he was looking at his watch. But I was in bed, and I remember asking, if I do this, if I can't make it, and I decide that I just want to be with you, is that okay? Now, I'm not saying that I was planning ending my own life, but it was, it was, it was starting to cross my mind that some people end their life in a very peaceful manner, and it's because they've lost hope here and they want to go to something better. I never saw it that way. And the answer that I got was, you can do that, but will you allow me to do something with this? The season is going to be over. Let me do something with this. Will you allow me to do something with this? And so I I can tell you, I don't know what's going on with people in the room. I imagine there are people here who might connect with what I'm talking about and think to yourselves, what you're going through right now will never in a million years result in you sitting on a stage at church, sharing your story of recovery or writing a book or just anyone being able to use your story for inspiration to help somebody with their story. But there was a surrender that night, and I, and I, and I think I, what I was really saying was, okay, I know I still have an out, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to get through this, you know, to borrow a baseball term. I, if I'm going to strike out, I'm going to go down swinging. And so, um, so that's... That's when the work really began is when I thought, okay, I want, I'm going to allow you to fix this the way you want to fix this, not the way I want to fix this. I was married in 2008. Um, my wife's name is Sarah. We were friends for four and a half years before we even started dating. And we would just kind of go in and out of each other's lives. Sometimes I would be dating somebody or she'd be dating somebody. And in respect of the relationship, we would disconnect. But we always seemed to come back to one another. When we got married, and she was moving in and going through her stuff, I think it, it might have been two or three years after we were married, she was going through some old journals, and she had a journal from 2005. We'd known each other. She didn't know what I was going through. And I, I can't tell you if it was a sermon or a book or a conversation or whatever, but she and her roommate and her best friend decided that in the summer of 2005, neither were married, neither were dating at the time that they needed to pray for their future husbands. So as I was going through that, she felt called that, and her friend, her best friend Alyssa, felt called that our husbands need our prayer right now because they may be going through something now that will affect them in a way that might keep us from coming together eventually. And she was praying for me, not by name, But she was praying for me as I was going through that. And then we were married three years later. So the promises of yes and amen, we don't know what they look like. Um, I think the, the promises of the world today are if you work hard enough, you will get what you want and you will be happy. And I'm here to tell you that as I, as I said, and I stole that line from somebody else, by the way. But God did give me everything I wanted just to prove to me it wasn't what I needed. So talk about finding freedom from your struggle with alcohol in the midst of this, knowing that, right, to like 
I've, I've got I to gotta go find God, or I've got to be in a place where I can hear him trying to find me. Um, talk about the aspect of freedom from alcohol abuse and those who might be hurting so badly, they're just they're taking something to mask it every day. So I started drinking when I was 14 years old. I lost my virginity when I was 14 years old. So I was, I was very much into the world and doing what, what felt good at a very young age. And um, um, alcohol and I got along really well most of the time. And in Los Angeles in, in the 80s, being a heavy drinker and alcohol was just kind of what every knucklehead guy did at that time. And we did dumb things. Um, by the grace of God, I'm still here and didn't hurt myself or somebody else um, much worse that would have really altered the trajectory of my life. But, I mean, it was alcohol abuse. There's no doubt about it. Um, accidents. I flipped a car with my high school girlfriend. Um, because I had been drinking, uh, more than one accident because of alcohol, because of, I was drinking. I was arrested more than once because of alcohol, spent the night in jail one night because of alcohol. Um, and so I knew, and the people around me knew, that um, I had a problem. But at the same time, I had a whole culture that wanted to re reward me for my accomplishments by buying me a drink. I mean, I was really, when I... When I first started broadcasting for the Minnesota Twins, I was 24 years old, if you can imagine that, just five years ago. Um, <laughs> so, um, and I was really good at doing a game and then going to the nearest sports bar afterwards, knowing that everyone had just watched me on the screens and come in. I mean, that was, that was I needed that. And um, so finally, on January 25th, 1998, I, um, I, was on, I, was in, I was still in Minnesota, had gone to the University of Minnesota, played baseball there, and now I'm broadcasting the University of Minnesota Sports and the Minnesota Twins. And so I was on campus, and I got into a fight, a fist fight, with a current baseball player at the University of Minnesota, a college kid. And I had to go in front of my college coach and explain to him that me, the example that he used with his players that said, if you don't make it to the major leagues, you need to find something else to do. And look at what Ryan Lefevre did. He found something he loved in college. He walked away from a professional career. And now look at what he's doing. I, I was the shining example, a high-profile example of what someone could do without playing. And now I've gotten into a fight with one of his current players. It was, it was the most shameful day of my life, probably. But it also was the last time that I ever had anything to drink in January 25th, 1998. Later, I would come to realize that that was, that was self-medication. I'd never heard that before. But that was my medicine for my insecurities and my inability to feel comfortable around people, trust that they were interested in me and not what came with me. Um, I was not secure enough in myself um, to just be myself, I needed alcohol to to medicate me and get me to get me through that. I was not aware of that. Um, a mentor of mine in Minnesota after that incident told me he said i need i need you and you need to know something. you need to know what people in this industry think about you and see and how they see you. They see you as a young man with a tremendous amount of talent. And very little character. And I mean, you talk about a dagger to the heart. And so I prayed um, on a bus going on a twins winter caravan the next day with a cut on the side of my face that um, I would someday I'd be a man of character. So um, again, prayers answered. Um, I get a phone call in November of 2017. And a lady by the name of Rachel Segovia, who worked for Lee Summit, at John Knox Village every day, the mayor has what's called a mayor's character breakfast. You've, you've spoken there before. And I have a voicemail. I wish I would have saved it, but I don't need to because I'll remember it forever. But she said, my name is Rachel Segovia. I'm calling from the city of Lee Summit. The, the mayor every year has a mayor's character breakfast. 
and the board knows that you are someone who feels very strongly about character. Would you be our keynote speaker? And I thought, wow, that's a heck of a compliment. So I call her up, and I said, thank you. I'd be interested. When is it? January 25th, 2018. 20 years to the day. And I only know that because on my phone every January 25th, I'm reminded that that was the last day that I drank. 20 years to the day when I, after I prayed to be a man of character, the mayor trusted me to be a keynote speaker at a character breakfast. I had forgotten about that prayer, to be honest with you. I had forgot about that day, but I would forgotten about that prayer. But God didn't forget about that prayer. And yeah. he used that day to remind me. Yeah. He used that day. <laughs> it's cold up here, by the way. Is it only? <laughs> he used that day. When you don't have HUD to interrupt you, you don't yeah, know what exactly. to say every now and then. So, like, I'm Gosh, just letting wish, it breathe, Can we go man. to commercial right now? Um, <laughs> um, he used that day to remind me that all of his promises are yes and amen. amen. So we're going to kind of sprint to the finish line now. The last part of Jesus' plan for rest is he'll, we'll get there in two weeks, but he'll provide spiritual family. In the book, there were moments when your mom, when Sarah when one of your great friends, Mike Sweeney, um, walked with you together because you couldn't walk alone. For those of us who have friends struggling with depression and anxiety and stress and mental health, so I want you to kind of flip the script now, and I want you to tell us how we can be the mom yeah. and, the, and the friends to just keep walking along. And then, and then I want to have you talk to people about Jesus and his part in your story in case... They do not have him in their story yet. Sure. Well, first of all, I was in a movie that just came out uh, this month. It's called uh, Just Like You, Anxiety and Depression. I would encourage you to find it and watch it, especially um, if you have um, a teenager or someone in their early 20s that's going through this. Um, I'm in it. Abby Eden, who's an anchor at Fox 4, is in it. And there's some. And I'm going to interrupt you real yeah. quick because I just saw Chad do something really quick. So they've, okay. they've got it on the screen. For those of you who are not fast at typing notes, pull out your phone, take a picture of that. <laughs> that way you won't forget it. Um, and then when you get home, you can look it up. So, Chad, thanks for that tip on the front row. And one of the great things about this movie is that um, Abby and I tell our own story, but these, these brave, brave young adults tell their story, and every one of them has someone that walked alongside them, and they talk, and they're part of the movie too, and they talk about what they observed and how they were a friend, and then the person who was going through depression talk about how much that friend helped by just walking alongside him. It's a great, it's a great resource. Um, the, one of the turning points for me in my depression was when I realized that I had a medical condition it wasn't that I was weak. I realized I could not will myself through my depression. I could not will myself through my anxiety. And so that ended up bringing a lot of peace that I don't have as much control of this as I thought I did. But my mom, who had been through clinical depression twice, and I write about her in the book quite a bit, she came alongside me, and there was a lot of healing for us to resolve some things from, from my childhood. She just sat with me and she asked me questions. How do you feel? How do you feel now? And I don't remember her telling me how I should feel. She just wanted me to express, to give my, my feelings a voice. Instead of it being trapped in my mind, to just give it a voice. And just to, just to be there to receive it and share what she had gone through. Again, another story of what she had gone through. Um, my faith deepened, there's no doubt about that, when I had to let go of my achievements and my accumulations and, and, and grab on to Jesus. And what I, had, what I had to do, and I think this, this pertains to not only Christians in the room, but maybe people who are visiting our church for the first time, I really had to take a long look at who I believed Jesus actually was. Um, was he just a nice story that we tell at Easter time or at Christmas? Or was he God's only son who was sent into the world 
to live among us, predict his death, die for the forgiveness of our sins, and then rise again. And if that's true, then I realize I needed to pay a lot more attention to what he had to say. He can't just be, as you said a few years ago, and I've never forgotten it, the Bible for me could not just be this book of suggestions and, you know, if it is God's word, I need to be reading it and hearing what God actually had to say, not what somebody wished God would say because it was more convenient for their lifestyle. And I needed to make, is, you said, is Jesus your life coach or is he the Lord of your life? And so I know that those, those are scary words for people who didn't grow up in church or maybe they've drifted away from the church, that Jesus is the Lord of your life. But really, if it be, for me, if it begins with his word and what he actually said, I always encourage people, get a Bible that has Jesus in, in red letters so you know exactly what, what he is actually saying. And then to think that if he is who he claims to be, um, then I better start following what he did say and um and doing the very best that i can to follow what he says because it's for my good um so i think it was just more of a reliance on jesus for who he actually is and not who i want him to be and and there there was more freedom with that realizing that that the savior of the world has time for me who in their right mind, if Jesus is who he claims to be and he is present for us and whatever's going on in our lives, would turn that time down with him? So I had to spend more time with him. Um, my life now, when I get in the car, I mean, if I listen to worship music or I listen to bot radio. I cannot afford to listen to a song that reminds me of a time in high school or a time in college because that's when the enemy wants to come in and say, hey, remember how much fun we had then? So I've, I've, I've had to use my first, when we first came to Journey and you, you were challenging us to have a word for the year, my first word was immerse. Um, if I truly was going to be a follower of Jesus, I had to immerse myself in him. So two things. Um, I've gone way over, by the way. Yeah, I just saw the clock for the fine. first time. Okay. I never pay attention to that <laughs> clock. Like, the, <laughs> and everyone here knows that. Like, that's like, there's a clock back there. Um, I told Ryan when we walked out of here, for us, Sundays are catalysts. Uh, we don't have time in an hour and 15 minutes to do the hard work, usually spiritually, that needs to be done. They're just catalysts to next steps. So in your bulletin, you'll see this little card. We are this Saturday, um, if you can make it here. And I believe, are we offering an online option? Can somebody, not an online option with this one. Um, you can get the information if you need. We're having a mental health workshop. And one of the great parts about this workshop is Pastor Mike Evans, who does all our spiritual care, has for the last several weeks been gathering a list of Christian counselors around the city at every price point. To be able to walk with people who say, I think I need more than a message. And I think I need more than a Sunday. Um, I, I, I need some more help. Um, I'm willing to acknowledge that I'm hurting and I need some more help. If you would like more information on how to get for you or for somebody you're close to some help, you can fill this out. You can just check uh, more information about the workshop or I'm attending the workshop. If you cannot attend, we can send you everything that we'll be covering there. Um, and we would love to be available to help you with your journey. But if you're here today and you do not know Jesus, your first step is to draw near to the God, like Ryan said, who's like already standing outside the door of your house knocking. So I'll, I'll turn life coach for a minute because you said your life coach would tell you how to apply the things that you heard. So Ryan just said I had to go to a place where I could find God. And once I got there, like I realized that he had never stopped communicating to me. I just had to get in a place where I could hear him. Today may be the place where you have finally heard God has been communicating to your heart. He loves you. He sees you. He can help you. He did predict his death and resurrection, and then he performed that, and everything else he has to say to you can in some ways be summarized by the scripture we started with. Come to him, and he'll give you rest. He knows you're tired. He knows you're weary. 
He knows you're burdened. He can give you rest. And if you've never stopped to open your heart to receive Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. If it's been a long time since you've run to Jesus rather than from Jesus, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And after we close in prayer, we'll have kind of a time of closing worship where our band will sing and we've got communion stations set up around the room for those of you who are followers of Jesus who want to spend some prayer time in communion. But across the front of our stage, some of our spiritual care team will be here. And their role here is just to pray for people who are hurting. Uh, Yesterday, my wife's grandmother um, passed away. And last Sunday at this service, um, she was really struggling with whether or not she should go see her. And at the end of the service, just because her heart was burdened, she came forward to one of our spiritual care team members, Pastor Mike's wife, Wendy, and just said, will you just pray with me? I just, I am so burdened. And she said, Christian, literally in that moment, I felt like God spoke to me as they were praying over me that you need to go. She went backstage, called her dad and said, I feel like I'm supposed to go and got to spend um, Sunday night and Monday with her Oma, her German grandmother this week before she passed away Saturday. And she said, I'm so glad we had that little moment in the service where I could just come tell somebody what I was burdened about and ask them to pray for me. If we can do that for you today, uh, it would be our tremendous honor to pray for you as we get ready to close this service. If you need Jesus, today he's knocking at the door of your heart saying, I can help you, but you gotta let me in. Would you bow your heads as we close in prayer together today? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed, but hearts are open all over the room and watching online. If today is the day that God brought you to church so that you could receive Jesus and begin your journey towards rest and healing, and you've never started a relationship with Jesus, but you've tried just about everything else, and you're ready now to receive him. From your heart to heaven, not out loud, but from your heart to heaven, would you just pray something like this? Just repeat after me, Jesus, I need you. Just from your heart to heaven, just say, Jesus, I need you. I need your rest. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I don't have much hope. I need help. So Jesus, today by faith, I trust that you're willing to be my savior. I ask you to forgive me for the sin in my life that was rebellion against you. I ask you to begin to heal the hurts in my soul. I ask you to clean up the parts of my life that I'm embarrassed and ashamed about. And I ask you to walk with me on a pathway to find healing. Jesus, I need you. So today I receive you and I commit by faith which means I don't even understand it all, but I'm willing to lean in. I commit by faith to follow you. Today, I want to become a follower of Jesus and receive the rest of Jesus. With heads bowed and eyes closed all over the room, nobody looking around. If you just prayed with me, I'd love to pray for you. Just pray that as you begin your journey with Jesus, that God might bring you the rest that you're looking for. So if you just prayed with me, just a second, I'm going to count to three. I'm going to ask everyone else to keep their heads bowed and their eyes closed. But if you prayed with me, when I get to three, would you just kind of raise your hand, hold it up in the air for a couple seconds, give me a chance to scan the auditorium, then I'll have you put it down before I pray for you while nobody else is looking around, but while you've opened your heart to God. If you prayed with me on the count of three, would you just raise your hands and let me know so I can pray for you? One, two, three, right now, just raise them up all over the room. You all started raising your hands before I even got to three. Keep them up if you would. Ryan, if you would just glance around the room and see these hands. Would you say a prayer for every person raising their hands saying, today I'm asking for the rest of Jesus. Would you pray that they would find that? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people who have so bravely raised their hands toward you. And I especially pray for those who 
did not have a good example and a good relationship with their earthly father, that while they're trying to resolve that, as it took me years and years to resolve that, that they will know that that's not who you are. You are a perfect father that created everyone in this room for a special purpose. And I'm grateful for the purpose that you've given me. And I pray that today you will encounter them in a way that they've never been encountered before. And that they will receive you, that they will feel you. And they know that you see them and you hear them. You welcome them and that you embrace them. And I pray that today is not the only day, that it's just the beginning. And if if they've heard anything that I've said today, is that all your promises are yes and amen. Maybe in a day, maybe in a year, maybe even in 20 years. That you are a good, good father. You are a perfect father. And that they will sit at your feet and just be open to everything that you have for them. And I lift this prayer to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your son who you sent to us to be with us and to show us the way to you through the Holy Spirit who is with us, waiting for us to receive your word and your hope through him. Amen. Just before we close, heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. I'm going to stand up right now and I'm standing on behalf of someone close to me who's struggling right now with stress or anxiety, depression and mental health. If you have someone who you will stand with in prayer, it may take 20 years before God answers the prayers you're praying for them. But if you're thinking of someone right now and you say, you know what, I can pray. And I'm going to begin to pray for someone specifically. If you have someone specifically that you want to begin to pray for, would you just stand wherever you are in acknowledgement of the person that you will pray for? You know their name. You know their story. You standing says, I'm going to leave here praying for someone who's struggling with anxiety, stress, depression, mental health. If everyone who is standing begins to pray, promise God is going to move in our midst. God, we're asking you to do miracles in the lives of hurting people because you have. We've heard from one today and we believe that you still can. So God, we stand today on behalf of our brothers and our sisters, our moms and dads, our sons, our daughters, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our husbands and our wives. God, we stand because we see hurt and we know the healer. And we pray that you will heal. Lord, it may be like Sarah that we're going to begin to pray for someone who they're not even going to know we prayed for three and a half years. But the prayers of today are going to be effective in their life in this season. So God, we give them to you and we ask you to heal in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.